Anesthesia Deconstructed is supported by National University's CRNA program. National University's CRNA program is one of the nation's top programs for CRNAs and dedicated to making you a successful CRNA. The program doesn't just prepare you for entry-level practice. National focuses on making you a full-service provider and gives you insight into what is actually happening in the industry. With connections to faculty with backgrounds in advanced clinical practice, academics, research, and anesthesia services management. Learn more at nu.edu. Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed, science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry expert Mike McKinnon to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the realities of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your host, Mike McKinnon. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm Mike McKinnon here. I'd like to uh, extend a warm welcome to Dr. Nathaniel Wolkenfeld, who is a general surgeon that's trained in large facilities on the West Coast of the country and worked in rural facilities and larger urban facilities. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the differences, what it's like to be a general surgeon in a rural area, uh, you know, differences in resources and anesthesia services, and we'll get into it. And I'd like to welcome you, uh, Dr. Nathaniel Wolkenfeld. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your training. Thanks. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you, Mike. And uh, my name's Nathaniel Walkenfeld, Nate. And uh, I went to, I'm a general surgeon. I went to medical school in New York, uh, residency at a large community program in California. And then I, straight from residency, went into uh uh, work, working, uh, just general surgery, and began in a small town in southern Arizona, where I was at for a year, transitioned from there to another uh, small community hospital in a rural setting in northern Arizona, where we are right now, and uh, more recently changed to a larger city um, not a major metropolitan area, but about population 100,000 to 200,000 in uh, um, Texas. And so, yeah, I kind of got a broad exposure to different, you know, major university hospitals to the very small um, rural type hospitals. I would say the only thing I haven't seen would be the really small critical access hospitals, which uh, I kind of have visited before, but never worked in one. That's excellent. And so when you came to a rural hospital coming from a relatively big training center and a big medical school, you know, you, you got a background in places that are academic centers with lots of resources. What are some of the things you noticed that were different in those facilities as far as resources and the way that you would manage a surgery that comes to the ER in one versus another, since clearly you can't do all the things you might be able to do in a large facility at a smaller place that might not have the resources post-op, not so much the surgery, but post-op, right? Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the biggest changes. I think no matter what, when you get out of a practice into, uh, when you get out of, uh, you know, training into practice, you're always or, or not always going to be in the same type of setting that you practice in. And so the, one of the most difficult things, I think, in the transition is figuring out the capabilities, your own personal capabilities, but also you have to take into account the capabilities of the place of the facility you're in. Because even if you can technically do a surgery, it's not really just the surgery. You have to have all the ancillary staff. You have to have you know, an ICU with, you know, good nursing and intensivists, and you might need radiologists who can do specialized procedures. And there's a whole host of, you know, supportive care that you might not have in a small hospital. And you have to figure that out uh, so that you can kind of determine whether, you know, you can take a patient on and take that responsibility or whether they need to or are better served in a larger facility. 
And so figuring that out was kind of uh, definitely tough because most people train in large hospitals, big hospital systems, and they have everything available, the most subspecialized uh, care in every kind of in every department in radiology and GI. And uh, and so there's people that can do amazing things and really help you out and bail you out of certain bad situations and if you go somewhere where they don't have any of that, you might be really stuck either having to manage something operatively that you otherwise wouldn't. And then you always kind of in the back of your mind are thinking, well, you know, should I send this person all the way to transfer them to another hospital just to get a procedure versus taking them to the operating room to take care of the problem? It's kind of a bigger deal and it would be otherwise unnecessary in a bigger place but if you don't have those capabilities should you keep them there and do it there send them somewhere else so that's a kind of a big change is just the figuring out that process of figuring out what your facility is capable of doing and and kind of using that to determine who you can take on as a patient it certainly adds another layer of complexity that you wouldn't think about because, you know, you know, I trained in a big academic facility, you know, as a, as a CRNA as well. And, you know, there was unlimited resources. You could get anything done. And you didn't even have to think about the patients after they left the PACU because now it became an, an admission. They were monitored maybe by the internal med guys, of which there was tons of them. And, uh, you know, or the critical care guys in the ICU, which there were tons of them. And this is all they did all day. You know, I think that in small rural facilities... It seems to be one of the rate limiting steps is not that we can't do the surgery, not that we can't get them into PACU or even out of PACU. All those things seem to be not the problem. It's what happens afterward that seems to be the bigger issue from a resource perspective as to, you know, what kind of a decision making tract occurs, whether we can manage this patient. You know, I'm, I'm never worried about getting them through anest the anesthetic, but I am worried about what's going to happen afterward in the ICU or on the floor or whatever, if, if we don't have that, that volume of care. And, uh, you know, another question I had for you is, did you notice when you came to a smaller rural facility that you seem to take a much more prominent role in their post-operative care in the ICU or the floor than you might at a big academic center? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are those, there's open ICUs, closed ICUs, but um, and you're right, like you could get somebody through a surgery, but you also know that with all the like physiologic issues going on with them, if they're a really sick patient with multiple, you know, a lot of different things going on, multiple different organ systems that have to be carefully managed. If there's no good critical care at the end of that, you know, you can't sit by their bedside and and take care of them in the ICU. You need to rely on having a good some somebody else to transition the care to and take care of that. And if they can't, then you're you got them through the surgery. But but then what? And uh, yeah, I I definitely you know I got a pretty decent critical care um, training, and so I was very comfortable with vent management and you know managing pressors and uh, and so I kind of you know you could tell depending on who was, you know, on call in the ICU, there were better or worse kind of care going on over there. And a lot of, a lot of them were, you know, a lot of people who were managing uh, patients in the ICU or didn't necessarily have the background. Yeah. So you definitely, especially if it's someone you operated on, you would get into and be more involved with um, their care. And then it's, it can get difficult because, you know, nursing is, you know, thinking that someone else is in charge and they should, you know, communicate with them. And so you want to be, you want to make sure that you're involved so that if something needs to happen, you can be there to make changes on the vent, to make changes in the pressors that otherwise would kind of go unnoticed or go too long without, you know, being changed. Cause that the whole, the whole advantage to the ICU is that it's, you know, minute to minute, hour to hour care. It's not like on a med surge floor where, you know, they check vitals every few hours. It's the whole point is being there to make changes in a timely manner. And, uh, and you, you end up being a lot, you know, more involved in that. And then, you know, that can affect you if you're not on call and, but you have a sick patient and you're basically fielding 
phone calls all night and then you have a full day the next day and then you're on actually on call, you know, it can add up to a lot of extra work. Right. So, and, and one of the things about rural facilities, you know, probably more unlike uh, an urban facility is the ability to attract though that, that level of experience or that service to a small, small town where the biggest store is Walmart. Right. You know, you've got the whether it's an advanced practice care provider or whether it's a physician in the ICU or whether it's a nurse in the ICU, you know, whoever that is or or the OR, any other of the of the services, you know, it's a it's a hard sell to your spouse, be they male or female, if they have a, a career somewhere else or they have a life somewhere else, their whole family's there to come to the place where the biggest store is Walmart. They know nobody and there's not exactly a nightlife. Right. So. I think to some degree we see a limiting a limit of what we could achieve capability wise with our ICU just by the nature of where we live. Yeah, absolutely. It is hard to recruit good people and I think some of some of the best people were there for other reasons because of their spouse or something had something in town and they just happened to be a really good, you know, critical care nurse who was working in a major hospital in a big city and then they moved here. And so this was the opportunity here for them, but uh, it is hard to recruit people um, to, to get really good care and people who have gotten really good training and know what they're doing. And you're right. It, that's one of the, that's one of the difficulties I think in, in getting a, a good ICU, you know, right. built is that you need that support staff and to get that quality, well-trained, a nurse is difficult in a small town that doesn't have, you know, much. Right. And they might not see the level of, of acuity or cases in the ICU that they would at a larger center where, you know, a larger center may have seven ICUs with patients rolling in and out every single day of various types of problems. So what they may see there every few weeks, we may see here every six months. Right. And I think that limits then the experience they can gain here, which may be a deterrent from wanting to work in that ICU. I mean, you know, um, I I do notice that some of the rural facilities are using EICU or essentially telemedicine through these view things. I know you've had some experience with that. What has been your perspective on how that works or doesn't work? Uh, (laughs) Uh, I really didn't, um, you know, on the one hand, a lot of critical care is looking at numbers, but um, I just found it was really, uh, if you're not there at the bedside, I mean, it's, you could be on a video screen looking at the monitor and even looking at the patient, but it is really different. And and it might also be a difference between medical ICU and surgical ICU, which they, you know, in a small place, there's no difference. It's just one ICU. And a lot of the uh, surgical critical care patients, they are treated different than, you know, medical, you know, MICU. And, and a lot of the telemedicine, tele-ICU people, they're just, you know, medical ICU people. They're not surgical ICU trained. They're not used to t- uh, post-op patients and how that's different than, you know, a, a regular, you know, medical issue. And so that, that's one thing. And also, I don't know, just not being there. Um, and there also, there was, I think there was a little bit of a miss or, or a lack of communication. I mean, I'm used to being somewhere where you can just talk to the doctor who's there and, and yeah, Yeah. text them, talk about a case, think about what's going on and what the plan is. And there, there, it's just almost like they act independently with the nurse and you may or may not be informed of important changes that are going on. Or so you kind of uh, get cut out of the loop a little bit, which, you know, your, your main goal is to be taking care of this patient. So you want to be the most involved. You're there physically. It's somebody, you operated on. And so, um, they can make changes, you know, order labs and, or sometimes order something and a result comes back, but nobody acts on it. And then it sort of makes it a little dangerous almost because you're kind of responsible because you have a patient physician relationship. Even if you didn't order a lab, if something comes back and someone should act on it, but nobody has gone that next step, then they're look to you and all of a sudden you didn't order this lab, but you weren't told it. You didn't even know it existed. So there's a little bit of a communication gap. Um, I would personally call them many times just to, just to touch base and say, Hey, what do you think about what's going on and what's your plan? And, 
And, uh, but you had to make that extra step to like communicate with them. They weren't calling you. Right. And so that tele-ICU, it, it's helpful in some ways, but, and I think the nurses like it because they, they can, they feel like immediate. it's, yeah, it's immediate and they can call, but you know, at the same time they could also call me <laughs> and I encourage them to, but sometimes they either would be hesitant to, or didn't want to, or it's two in the morning, but in, in despite you telling asking, you know, you know, call me with anything, they would just call somebody else to take care of it. But then you don't know what's going on. Right. And when, and, and in their defense, I guess, you know, one surgeon may say, call me, but not after midnight or another surgeon may be angry on the phone when they get a call at 2am, you know, nurses complain about that stuff all the time. So, you know, if they feel like there's some like pressure there, they'll take the path of least resistance and use the EICU, which is, that's what it's there for in, you know, but on the other hand, they miss out on this direct surgical consult and these, you know, the, the fluid shifts that happen with surgery and anesthesia, the complications that can occur from a surgery, depending on the surgery are all things, as you mentioned, that that EICU guy might not even be able to appreciate from a video camera. And if they don't get a really specific assessment from an RN who may or may not be new to the ICU, they're not going to pick it up then either. You know, the labs aren't going to show everything. And they're certainly generally not going to show the early signs where assessment in the room, across the room assessment, I think, picks up on those things. And that's the key. I think that's where EICU kind of falls down a bit. On the other hand, you know, do you have the volume at a small facility the revenue at a small facility and the ability at a small facility to attract, pay for, maintain, recruit a, a true critical care guy or girl. And I, I think the answer to that is generally no. You know, I, I think that it's difficult to do that because, well, I mean, let's be honest, if you're, if you're the guy who does a fellowship in critical care right. and you love taking care of the right. sick patients, you know, you're listening to M credit every day and palm credit every day. And you, you think, oh my God, this ICU stuff, this is what I want to do. And you come to a place where your biggest concern is a post-surgery, you know, edema or something. <laughs> it might not be yeah. an attractive mental game for you. Yeah, no, you're right. And I, I never, I don't think I really appreciated that before, but you're absolutely right. And it's the same for the nursing and same for the critical care. It's that it's almost like a vicious cycle. You don't have enough volume so that the people who love doing it and are going to be good at it because that's what they want to do. Those people want to see, want to be busy. They want to see tons of critical care patients be managing all these complex issues. And if you don't have enough of that to get people there, then you're not going to get good people. And then even though you need it, you're, you're just not going to be able to recruit that, that quality. And the zebras come with volume. Not with low volume. So if you're not seeing, you know, if you're seeing in our small rural facility, you know, we might do 10,000 cases a year at this facility. It's a significant number of anesthetics and OR procedures, but that's not like a facility doing 150,000 cases there. When you're thinking about zebras, the percentage of small time, you'll see these people, you might see it once a year here. You might see it once a month there. And I think for those people, that's a big deal. You know, I think they feel like they're missing out on it too. I think that's a, a concern that they won't, they'll lose that sharpness. And then will they be able to go somewhere else after they leave a small facility? So that's another deterrent of recruitment, I think, for, uh, you know, those additional ancillary services and uh, primary services that are required to do really sick patients, um, for sure. Having said that, sick people live everywhere, right? So even if you're in a rural community, you still take care of incredibly sick people. And, you know, just because the hospital might not have all the resources post-op, if the patient's never getting any better than they are, they're optimized. In other words, right, from an anesthetic perspective, from a surgical perspective, from you know other cons- consultant perspective, cardiology, whatever, if they're as optimized as they're going to get and they still need this surgery, this lap api, this lap coli, this hernia repair, this low, you know, bowel resection, whatever it might be, then transferring them is going to make no difference at all. So... At that, at that point, you're still taking care of these physical status three, four patients all day long. And I would say at this facility we both worked at, that that's the majority of patients. Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, in, in, you know, in rural places, people are sicker because they have less access to care. They don't go to the primary care docs and they, they don't see doctors and a lot of, you see a lot of advanced pathology that you wouldn't see in a, you know, a more urban setting where people are more health conscious, let's say. And, uh, and so, yeah, that you still see the same difficult pathology, sick patients. And, uh, and you're right. Sometimes there, that's just how it is. There's not, not going to be any benefit to 
getting them somewhere else because it, you know the picture is what it is. You're you're not going to optimize them any further. You just have to take care of the problem. Right, and I think that's I think that's a misconception of rural medicine is that you know oh you guys only do the chip shot cases. The patients aren't sick there. If they're really sick, you're going to transfer them to an urban center. You know that may be true for a liver transplant patient in our facility at 6,200 feet above sea, sea level. That may be true for a severe pulmonary hypertension patient from a medical perspective. But for the most part, if those patients are don't need some specialized care, specialized surgery, they're not going anywhere. Right. No. And there's t- plenty of, of super difficult, super difficult uh, cases. I mean, the, the place where I trained in residency was a fairly affluential um, big community hospital. And the gallbladders I saw there, very different than the gallbladders that I see now. Um, I don't think I've seen the classic Robin's Blue Egg gallbladder uh, in a very long time. There's uh, tons of terrible gangrenous, you know, gallbladders and not in these uh, pretty healthy, thin patients. They're very unhealthy, very big. With So there, there's plenty of difficult tough, tough cases that rural general surgeons take care of. And, uh, yeah. And I think they, you know, for the most part, uh, it's probably, uh, they might even see more difficult cases, I think, than some of the counterparts who are in big hospitals with, you know, very select patient populations who are going to subspecialists and, yeah. That's what I was thinking is the surgical specialist. I mean, I, I've worked at facilities where people only did lap appies, lap coles, and hernia repairs as general surgeons. You know, they, they just did the same things every day and they were really good at it, but that's all they did. You know, whereas here, that's just not an option in a small rural hospital. You either have to take care of whatever comes through the door, which is the depth and breadth of general surgery, or you have to ship it on assuming that you can't even do that. I mean, we've certainly run into problems here in our rural facility where, you know, we're three hours from the nearest tertiary care center and the weather's bad. So the helicopters aren't flying and your this patient's not stable enough or too sick to, to send them down for a three hour drive in the back of an ambulance bouncing down the road. And we just do the case because that's just what you have to yeah. do. You know, and I think people forget that 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 side of, you know, rural medicine, rural surgery, rural anesthesia, that, you know, the bottom line is, is the goal is to take care of the patients when they come through the door in the ER. Our goal is to keep them in our facility as long as it's safe and we can manage them safely. But sometimes you don't have the luxury of making that decision. And I know you've been on call a number of times when we couldn't fly people out and you just have to suck it up and do it. Yeah. 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 I mean, in the end, if you, if you have no choice and there's no, you know, basically that you do what you have to do and you just, you know, explain what you need to explain to uh, the patient and their family in terms of, you know, your capabilities and what you're, you know, what you're used to seeing. And then, you know, you, you just basically take care of the problem. From there. I I think some of the other things you kind of touched on a little bit is um, when we talk about you know, determinants of health. When you're in a, in a rural community, I think you really pegged it is there's, there's a different type of perspective on, first of all, access, right? Not everybody can get in to see a family practitioner or at all or on a regular basis or yearly. And there's always that patient that comes in who's clearly not healthy and says, yeah, I don't have any health problems because I haven't seen anybody in 10 years, right? Or the patient who had an echo in the previous place they lived with moderate to severe, you know, uh, hypokinesis and a left ventricle from a previous MI with an EF of 25%. And they said, yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine. But the last time they saw their cardiologist or a cardiac practitioner had been a decade ago. And um, their access to that here is limited, you know? So if they're working every day, be it on the farm or working in a regular job, they just can't take a day off and uh, eight months from now to get in to see the cardiologist if that's how long it might take in a small area with limited resources. And I think we see a lot of patients where in a rural area where there's a lot more pressure on surgery and anesthesia to manage these patients for, for, for operative care, you know? I think it's difficult to always get them in to somebody, including a consultant. And then the buck stops with us. That's where the, where the last line of defense before surgery is anesthesia and the surgeon. Right. Which puts you in a tough spot because you're sort of being pressured to do, you know, to do, to put somebody to sleep who in a normal, otherwise in a normal, you know, in a different setting, you would send them to this specialist, this specialist, get them 
fully and appropriately worked up medically and uh and then go ahead with surgery and you know and some of their workup might change things and but so you're kind of going into it and and then you have to decide am i just gonna just bite the bullet and and you know do elective surgery on this guy who hasn't really been worked up totally for his uh cardiac issue and for all i know i'm going to give him you know an anesthetic drop his blood pressure and have a ma- you know massive mi on the table and and could I have done something beforehand that I would have done normally, but just because we don't have those resources, you know, where do you draw the line of, right. of am I going to do it or should I say, no, hold on, this guy needs to see a cardiologist. And I think when that's not, when, it, when it's not as clear cut is when it's harder. You know, that guy that I mentioned with the echo is pretty clear cut. We're going to delay the elective case until he gets a new echo and gets a, a you know, an optimization and, um, you know, assessment from a cardiologist. I never use the terms cardiac clearance because then you get a checkbox, right? Um, I think that that's a different scenario. But when it's on the edge, when it's in the gray zone, I think anesthesia and surgery have to become then that final stop. And what, what that does is expand, you know, resources on your end, you know, like, so we have butterfly IQs and do a, a, a TTE right there on the weekend when this case is either going to go or get shipped and check and see right. how they're doing. And that's part of the anesthesia's uh, domain and or, or doing labs or doing the workup or making phone calls or getting a direct hands-on assessment with a patient day of surgery because you can't get them there earlier and determine what their ADLs are and how, you know, how well they do at home. Oh, you go up a flight of stairs, you walk two miles a day. Well, then, you know, no matter what it says on a test, those things should be factored into the reality of the patient's situation, right? And I think, I think you see a lot more of the, of the directed assessment like that in rural areas than you do in big centers where basically someone, you know, signs up for surgery day and then they get the shotgun approach to medicine of every test is ordered and they're all fine. So good to go. Right. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the acuity of the case also changes things like the two extremes are obvious, you know, somebody with an emergency, you know, perforation or bleeding who needs surgery, no matter what. Yeah. You take them. And the other extreme, totally, you know, completely elective, like a cosmetic surgery, then you would really, you know, make sure that they're, you know, healthy. And if there was any question, you could take as much time as you want to get them to wherever you want. But then in the middle is, you know, symptomatic hernia where they've been admitted five times in the last, you know, and and has to happen, but it's not incarcerated it's not really an emergency or a gallbladder has been in and out of the er who's just you know got this who's right in pain gonna show up anyway in the next day in the er and so there's all these kind of gray areas where it's urgent semi-urgent it's not an emergency you do have how much time do you have to really work them up and get them um the real like you know the 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 best pre-op work up you can and when do you just uh you know, do, do what you have available best you can, and then, you know, take them. And of course, most people do fine, but it's, you know, it's not for the majority. It's always for that, that one case that you, you know, find something. I I had a case just two weekends ago, someone came in with gallstone pancreatitis and uh, resolved. Uh, They got their ERCP, got their stone, you know, uh, cleared their common bile ducts and I was up to do take out their gallbladder and uh it was on a Saturday and uh um in the pre-op that an anesthesiologist looked at the EKG and he saw some T-wave inversions and it wasn't clear he talked to the patient she gave some symptoms of you know shortness of breath and and basically we ended up canceling the case that she could get a workup because it really was elective there was no urgency to get right. the gallbladder out she had her uh, pancreatitis had resolved it was just sort of a follow up to get her gallbladder out before she left the hospital as kind of a standard uh thing and uh so that delayed it a day and she ended up getting seen by a cardiologist he didn't echo it was fine we did the surgery the next day but um you know that 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 ekg was done on admission two days before and you know family practice didn't think anything of it but we came up to this situation where there was a small possibility that this represented something significant and needed to be evaluated at least. And it was definitely indicated before a totally, completely elective surgery. So if there was any question, we wanted to make sure, you know, she's not going to have a 
major cardiac event, but yeah. yeah. So, but, and you know, it's a weekend and should she just go home, get it done, you know, in somebody's office in the next few weeks and then do her surgery a week later or, uh, yeah, it makes it complicated. So when you think back in your rural experience, what, what's a case that sticks out to you? Um, uh, a lady had come to me in the office for this, uh, uh, bump on her head like um what her primary care doctor told her was a lipoma and um she gave a history of having opened her the door to her dryer and uh, just lightly bumped her head and she developed a swelling there and you know kind of didn't make sense to me because that's not really a major trauma that you should get a hematoma from um but i kind of felt around on her head and uh and it felt like a typical hematoma, kind of felt, felt like a hematoma. And I thought, you know, she's not on blood thinners, but, you know, she must have, maybe she hit her head harder than she thought, or she had another trauma, some other. But it was, you know, it was a little sore and it had been the same. It was just bothering her because she couldn't get her hair cut properly. Right. And I told her, you know, just leave this alone. It's a hematoma. We'll, uh, um, you know, we'll just give it some time. It'll go down on its own. You know, if we go in and try to, evacuate the hematoma it probably will cause more problems than you know if you just left it alone and uh, let it go down um and i didn't you know it crossed my mind should i get a ct of her head but i thought that would be way overkill because she bumped her head on her dryer door and has a little hematoma but she persisted she said no i want this evacuated i want this you know this bump is bothering me it just bothers me um so i told her you know discuss the risk bleeding infection uh, and I told her, might you know, if you have a bleed, you might get another hematoma that'll just you know under the suture line or something. And she still wanted it, still wanted it. So uh, um, I figured, you know, we'll just. I figured to do it in the OR, not in the office, because uh, you know the scalp is pretty vascular and it can bleed. So I thought, if I just have a bovi, you know, I can stop the bleeding. We can just evacuate this hematoma and uh, and. Um, and it'll be, you know, 15 minute procedure, go home. So, uh, sure enough, we got her on the table. We gave her some anesthesia. She was on, uh, on her side, like left lateral to keep it as position and, um, open up the skin and I've kind of feel around and not getting much, you know, clotted blood back, which kind of expected. And, uh, there's some, you know, normal venous oozing from the scalp. Um, so I go a little deeper and get some hematoma out and okay, great. I can feel, you know, I can, uh, feel this kind of squishy stuff. It looked a little beige, not like the black, dark purple, you know, hematoma you would expect. And, uh, then, um, I figured I'd do a finger sweep of the cavity, get all this hematoma out and then the suture her skin back up and I'm feeling around and uh what i feel are these really sharp edges sharp edges of like a circle makes a circle and i'm trying to figure out what is going on and just randomly dawns on me that i'm feeling the edges of her skull and that there is a hole in her skull like a you know and again makes no sense she lightly hit her head on the dryer door that wouldn't give you a skull fracture and if she got a skull fracture with a hematoma she'd probably be in the er because she'd you know that that would be a major trauma so i cannot figure out why this is going on there's decent amount of venous oozing going on i you know look down and i'm so i'm feeling with my finger and i feel the edges of the skull and i realize that deep to this is basically her dura it's her dural membranes and I'm looking at it and I'm, then I'm freaking out thinking, did I just cut into somebody's brain is mm-hmm. what's going on here? Does she, she going to wake up and be coma? You know, is she never going to wake up? She can be comatose. She may not going to be able to move half her body. And it was during that, it was during that pressure. She had Cushing syndrome. Yeah. So then I, you know, I, when I it. yeah. <laughs> so I, I thought we need to just pack this wound and get a CT of her head, figure out what's going on. So we put some packing on mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, heart rate drops. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, we realized there was a little too much pressure. Um, so we kind of had to take a few pieces of gauze off, 
put a moderate, you know, light amount of pressure, just enough to stop this venous oozing. Cause now I don't want to bovie anything. I see her freaking brain is there. Um, and so we put that on, get her onto the intubator to protect her airway, get her on the CT. And sure enough, she had a huge chunk of bone missing and actually had multiple areas in her skull with, um, with, um, just miss, you know, does her bone was basically dissolving in multiple places. And, uh, this part on her, on her head, it must've been, it either happened on its own and the washing machine story was unrelated or it was just a very light trauma. And it was an area that was already, um, had a pathologic, you know, fracture. Um, and so, um, and, and what we, and so basically we, we got her into the ICU, uh, woke her up, extubated, talking, awake, moving everything. And, um, flied her out to a neurosurgeon and she ended up having to have like a some sort of mesh coverage of this hole in her bone and they did some biopsies ended up being you know metastatic multiple myeloma and she had this all over her body this you know bone involvement and uh but that was like a completely you know this was supposed to be a 10 15 minute outpatient procedure we'll get rid of this hematoma go home and uh turned out ended up being this huge you know uh, very scary uh <laughs> um you know definitely uh, a close call i would say i don't know yeah. uh but uh, definitely more than i expected and uh yeah, that's that's why uh, that's why God created Scotch. <laughs> but hey, we took care of it, and she did fine. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was again, yeah. You know, okay. guy came in with you know abdominal pain, and he was he he had clear peritonitis, needed to go to the ER, something bad was going on, and uh, um, no perforation. But we opened him up, and basically, from his entire small bowel was. Uh, necrotic i mean ischemic necrotic probably you know wasn't going to be preservable there was nothing really to take out or or you know temporary closure and come back a second you know for a second look to see if anything uh, recovers and it probably yeah it was a major proximal mesenteric occlusion and it was sort of you, you realize that there was literally nothing you could do for them you're not going to take out their entire small bowel that's just non-survivable so you kind of recognize this non-survivable event. You just basically close them up and talk to the family. And um, I think we were able to extubate them. And so they want, he wanted to, family wanted to talk to him. So we, I gave him a bunch of medicine, did blocks on him and maintained his ability to talk to the patients, to the family to say goodbye, basically. And he was able to be awake and do that, which was a big deal, I think, to the family and all this in a small rural facility. That was a, those are crazy cases. And, you know, you're not going to transfer that guy, you know, I mean, and uh, sad outcome. But at the same time, you know, even in a small place, we could manage to get this guy awake, be able to have a discussion with the family, you know, say goodbyes. And that's a big deal, I think. So, you know, sometimes in a big academic center, I think some of those things get overlooked and, you know, ever it's just such, it's such an assembly line that maybe that doesn't happen as often, but in a small rural facility, I think it's can be the focus, uh, you know, doing the right thing for the people. Yeah. You know? And it helps them to have everybody who was caring for their, you know, loved one who's still involved. You can there, see actively there. involved throughout yeah, their yeah. care as opposed to some, you know, big name guy does a surgery and then he's off at six and he leaves and they never see the guy again. Yeah. That kind of a thing. So one of the other questions, you know, you came to a rural facility that is all CRNA. So all nurse anesthesiologists, uh, all CRNAs working independently. And prior to that, you'd been in places that had the the anesthesia care team style with the physician anesthesiologist and four CRNAs, and then probably places with physicians. And what did you notice different or how did you feel the care was, I guess, for, for the anesthetic for, uh, 
for sick patients. Right. Yeah. So uh, interesting. I never even knew what a CRNA was until I got out to practice into a small town and they said, oh, there's a nurse anesthetist. And I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> and uh, of course, I since I didn't know what it was and I was like, hmm, I wonder. Is that going to be okay? Is this, what is this? What? How are right. they going to do? But uh, my first year, I was in a small hospital in Southern Arizona. And it was actually, I don't even know if I told you, it was, it was an MD anesthesiologist who had a group of CRNA. And so, and they were, I don't know, it was, it was a mix there. Some were clearly good, some were so-so. And, uh, and then I came here and, uh, honestly blown away with the, with every, every CRNA in, in your group and, you know, looking back to all the MD anesthesiologists from, you know, all the you know major places, no difference, no difference in care. In fact, the opposite. I knew some, you know, older anesthesiologists in big places who were, you know, close to retirement, did things in a very kind of old fashioned way, not very flexible in managing patients. And, and their, you know, my comfort level with the way they took care, took care of patients, took care of patients compared to the CRNAs here. It's just, I mean, the CRNAs here are just outstanding. I mean, very easily better, if not absolutely equal to MD anesthesiologists, the knowledge of physiology and just uh, taking care of really high risk sick patients and getting them through operations. And even in the pre-op, pre-op and post-op care, actually really, really super impressed and, uh, and especially, I mean, a blocks, you know, doing things that I never saw anesthesiologists, they didn't do that many blocks in places I had been here. They, you know, block everything very effective and, and really just knowledgeable, good, solid care. I would very easily myself or anyone I know, all of my loved ones have, you know, anesthesia care by anybody in, in your group with those people that I know. So it was kind of like, uh, and I never, same, same, similar, uh, situation with like DOMD where I didn't know, you know, I never poo pooed DO. I wasn't like, Oh, I'm an MD. They're a DO. They, you know, they're second rate. I never, ever thought like that, but I also didn't know what kind of training DOs got. And just the two colleagues, uh, now currently in Texas and in here, um, who I had as, like, uh, experienced partners who are, um, more experienced than me. And, um, just, uh, my sort of colleagues that I, uh, you know, worked with, they were both DO and both of them were technically like technical skill, probably the best I've ever seen. Um, and it really comes down to, they clearly got really good training. And so it's the same thing. It's with, with CRNAs, if, if they get the training that they get and they get a good training and it's in the hands-on experience, which is the most important part. I mean, the book experience is good too, but, um, uh, or the knowledge, you know, the textbook knowledge, but just, the uh, it doesn't matter really the, 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 uh, letters at the end of the name. If, if you have the experience with sick patients, taking care of sick patients, and you've just done it enough that you're, you know, you know your physiology, you know how to treat patients pre-op, post-op, and intra-op, and it doesn't really matter what the letters at the end of your name are because the CRNAs that I've, you know, worked with here for the last seven years, at least as good, if not better, than most MD anesthesiologists that I've worked with. It's an interesting thing, and I think there's a lot of personal um, you know, like motivation in there too, you know, obviously physician anesthesiologists have good training. I mean, no one's going to say that they don't, right? I mean, I've got some of my best friends are physician anesthesiologists and they're not only, you know, been mentors to me, but, but they have had great training. And I think everyone gets great training. The question is, is what do you do afterward, right? right? If, if, if what you do afterward is continue to read, continue to advance, continue to learn, because, you know, when you graduate, you're just safe. That doesn't mean you're the best, right? That's all you are. From here on in, it's a continued upward road of learning and expanding and, and becoming better at your craft. And it's the same with surgery or any other specialty. But, you know, it, with physician anesthesiologists and nurse anesthesiologists, CRNAs, I think it's the same. I think that there's, you, you know, we both get great training. 
There's no doubt anesthesia is approaching Six Sigma safety when it comes to, you know, the Institute of Health's uh, research. And it doesn't matter who does the anesthetic in that regard. Um, but if you graduate and you're never doing anesthesia, you know, you're, you're watching other people do anesthesia. What then happens to that, that skill? It, it, it's, it's not a personal comment on these individuals at all, but the reality is, is if you don't do it, you lose it, right? You know, if you're not taking care of the sick patient in the moment, or you're not taking care of the full anesthetic, you're not in there sitting in the stool doing the case, I think you lose your edge in anesthesia. And, and then you know, also the personality thing comes. If what you're looking for is a job where you can just go sit in a stool and play on your phone the whole day and trade stocks or whatever it is and do the very least to get by that case, then you're not going to be good at what you do. I mean, that, that's the bottom line, right? If you're never looking like, oh, you know, there's a new block, let's try it and see if patients get better outcomes and we use less opioids so they don't have as much nausea and all the things that patients complain about, right? Um, you know, if you're not willing to try that reduced opioid techniques, more blocks, and the patients just continually have pain. I mean, I worked in a place where prior to CRNAs being there, total knees and total hips and total shoulders were done without blocks and they're just put on PCAs. And on multiple occasions, patients ended up with respiratory arrest on the floor from overdose of narcotics. And I mean, that just happens, but then we take over, remove all that and do all kinds of blocks and they're wide awake and they don't need a PCA. And I think there's a risk uh, there to not being willing to expand your knowledge base and do these new things. You know, point of care ultrasound pocus is another example of that transition in anesthesiology, which we all practice, um, where, you know, CRNAs are learning to do that in their programs. In in the program where I teach, the residents are learning how to do point of care ultrasound. Why? Because that's where things are going. It's the new stethoscope, you know, and in a rural facility, it's more important than it ever would be in an academic center, right? You know, when I can put an ultrasound on a guy, you know, perfect example, we had a case that had an abdominal surgery, nothing major. It wasn't you and I, another surgeon, um, surgeon heads home and, uh, on the way home, the patient's getting hypotensive and I'm managing them in the PACU because I'm sitting there with them because I know something's not right, right? And that's part of that background. We'll talk a little bit about more of that in a bit. And, uh, you know, it just wasn't getting any better. So I grabbed my Butterfly IQ, which is a point-to-care ultrasound device used on my phone. I scan their abdomen and sure enough, I can see a bleed with a clot floating in the middle as the bleeding's coming out of the mesentery. So I, I call the surgeon, I text the video to them and they come in and we just take them back to the OR. There's nothing else to do. We just take them back to the OR. It's a weekend, right? So these are the kind of things, if you don't stay on top of new changes and move forward, you're not going to be good no matter how, what initials you have, right? And um, I think one of the things that helps for CRNAs is that they all have this, they all come with this critical care background, an average of three years. And the benefit of having that critical care background, I think, is you're used to seeing sick patients. So when you see sick, you know it. Right. And you know something's not right there because ultimately, as an ICURN, ERN, helicopter, uh, flight nurse, all those critical care roles, you you see it first, you identify it first, and you intervene first. And that's just part of the job, you know? And so then when you move on to anesthesia, it is the same thing. You know, you go to pick yeah. the patient up from the floor in the ER and you're like, okay, so we need to know a little bit more before we, you know. And I think that's key. I think that's key. And it's certainly not that one provider's better than another or one's worse than another. I don't subscribe to that at all. I don't I don't believe in that. I think everyone gets great training. Everyone graduates safe. You know, there's always outliers, but but that's everybody. It doesn't matter what your initials are. The key is what you do when you graduate. If if what you do you graduate is not do the job all day, I think you get worse. If what you do when you graduate is never read another thing or never advance or never continue to move down that pathway, I think you fail at at those times when the cases come in that are really sick or where you can make a big difference in the patient's pain, for instance. You know, I mean, the things that happen in anesthesia that are bad, anesthesia is pretty safe, but we're not paid for the time when it's easy. We're paid when it goes all down the tubes, right? And those things that happen are rare. In surgery and anesthesia, they're rare. So you have to continually review them so that when it comes, you're not flipping through a book or up on your phone trying to figure out what to do. You just know what to do because you review it, you know, those critical incidents. And that, that's often a lot related to the individual motivation of somebody. You know, I, I know you do the same thing with surgery. And so y- you've got to maintain that. And I think what makes our group great is that 
all those people are willing to put that time in and work. Yeah. Yeah. And there is clearly, you know, yeah, you, you can tell the difference between somebody who is, you know, it is, you're right. It's not a static, it's not like you learn what you learn and then you go out and work and, and you don't learn anything new. It's so, uh, it's the, you know, the technologies are advancing so rapidly and, and there's just constant, constant, good, solid research that really does impact and change the way we do things. And if you're not on top of it and you're, you know, you're going to miss out on a lot of good ways to help patients. And uh, you can tell people who are motivated and on top of it and kind of know, you know, what what the latest techniques are that that will benefit their patients and people who are just going on what they learned from 20 years ago. And that's what it, that's what it is. That's all they're going to do. Right. They're giving bicarb to everybody. (laughs) That helps. And and I think those are the key things really. And I think, you know, when, when I think of the difference between rural and urban, there, there are a lot of issues in urban practices as well. There's so many people. Communication becomes even more important because there's a thousand handoffs in a day. There's nurse practitioners, there's PAs, there's, uh, you know, there's learners of both. There's, there's resident physicians, there's, there's fellows, there's 14 attendings and some of them haven't touched a patient in a decade, but they're really good at teaching. And so, you know, they expect the chief resident to be doing the real work and that, that's just how it is. Right. But that also provides a lot of opportunity for the Swiss cheese effect. So many people involved, greater chance of things falling between right. the cracks in a small rural hospital where, you know, and not to say that the care is necessarily better, but to say that the care is a little tighter because I have the phone number of every single one of those people and I can text them anytime and say, Hey, how's Mr. Smith doing today after the surgery we did yesterday? And they'll text, well, Miss Smith's doing this and we're looking at doing this and okay, you know, and then maybe have you have a phone call and, uh, you know, and have that discussion. I mean, the great thing about our little rural hospitals, we do have click, which is a, you know, a patient sensitive HIPAA compliant text message system, which allows us to have these conversations quickly when we couldn't necessarily have a phone call, but get all the information right away. Right. That's a little different. And I think there's also a lot more domain protection in large academic centers. You know, what are you doing in my ICU? You know what I mean? That kind of thing where here everyone's looking for the help. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's the benefit. I think one of the other things, and I'm sure you noticed this in the seven years you were here, is, you know, you could see a patient and do a surgery on them in a large center, and you may never see that patient again. In fact, it's likely you will never see them again unless they're coming to your office, where here, when you're shopping for groceries at Walmart, you run into your patients, and there is a direct connection that just doesn't exist in other places. I mean, I know uh, in, in larger places that I've worked in, surgeons will live across town for this very reason, just to avoid running into people. And I get it, right? You want to keep those two worlds separate. But you can't do that in a small rural town. And, and the keys there is that if you don't provide good care and something goes wrong that shouldn't have, they're going to tell their friends and here reputation matters. And, it, and if, if I think if, if things don't go well, everyone hears about it. And it's like, you know, it's like the telephone system, you know, everyone's calling, everyone's saying, oh, you know, uh, Mike, the CRNA, Dr. Walkenfeld, the surgeon, Dr. Whoever, you know, or, or whoever, you know, did this and it was just wrong. You know, there is a much, it seems to me, and tell me if you feel this way too, there's a much more personal involvement because of the nature of a small community than you might have in a big center. Do you feel like that's? No, a hundred percent. I can't tell you how many, you know, patients you see just outside in your normal, you know, course of activity in the supermarket saying, Hey, how are you? And, you know, talking about their colonoscopy while you're waiting to buy groceries in, in line. But, um, and you're right is, and it is a double-edged sword. Cause someone could, you know, you could have a bad outcome no matter what would happen. And, and, you know, that gets misconstrued as something you did wrong, even though it would have happened to anyone. And then, you know, that could damage your reputation, but um, at the same time, if you, you're right, if you provide good care and you're a, you know, you're, you're a good solid, you know, physician and you have a good relationship with your patients that will, uh, have like ex- much bigger impact than you would in a major city where yes, nobody sure. knows anybody here. It's yeah. You see everybody everywhere and it's, you know, a lot of people are related. A lot of people have uh, family working in the hospital, a lot of people in, you know, because the hospital is the major employer. And so there's, you know, there's just a lot of people involved in the hospital and the out, the outer network of that is huge. And uh, there's like, you're, you're, there's no way not to 
be involved in someone's care who you're going to see outside the hospital. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's totally accurate, and, and that's what happens here. Yeah. And um, you know, I, I I think that that's where often rural places get this this bad rap that oh, you know, it's a small place; they don't have good people. Right. Right. But it doesn't take long for someone who's not good to get rooted out because everyone hears about it. And no one wants to go to that person. Yeah. And I think that's, that's key. Has that been your experience too? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, so I mean, some of the best, best surgeons of course are, are these rural surgeons who have been out there for 30, 40 years, doing literally that. doing everything and really just taking really good care of patients doing stuff that, you know, otherwise uh, most people would shy away from, but because they've been doing it for so long, they have the experience, that's how they trained and they, can provide that for their patients that that to me makes you know makes the best surgeon is is uh you know being able to provide such a broad range of of stuff to your patients. i know you've gotten the opportunity to work with some of our crna residents that have come from some of our programs how have, how has your perspective been on their ability to care because as you know we don't sit there with them the whole time. We don't manage them the whole time. We put them, we put them in the room. We're there for induction and then we're there for emergence. And that's, and we let them manage the case because they're seniors, right? They're yeah, ready exactly. close to graduation. How's been your perspective on it? Yeah. Really. Number one, really awesome. Cause many times I wouldn't even realize you weren't in the room until I looked up and I was like, Hey, no one's there except this <laughs> CRNA uh, student. But because they're, but you, the number two is the way you treat them is exactly perfect and right on, which is giving them that responsibility and letting them, you know, you, they know you're there in the background, but they're on their own in the room taking care of the patient. And that, that's the experience that's being lost in so many areas in medicine as the rules get stricter and stricter in terms of, you know, what residents are allowed to do. And there's, you know, big talk, you know, there's been for many years, this sort of loss of autonomy and, Mm -hmm. and what that, you know, you, you don't, you can't, you can't, go out of your training and be ready to practice if you haven't, you know, done it, you have the experience of being in the room yourself with the patient, managing that patient. So the fact that you give them that opportunity is huge. And that, that is, it's such a difference to not have somebody standing behind you, even in the back of your head and saying, ah, whatever I do, it's no big deal. Cause you know, he's right here standing, looking over my shoulder. Or you feel obligated to do it their way. Right. Because they're right, right there. Right, right. Right. Exactly. So, so the fact that they get that experience, I think, uh, is, is huge. Right. And, uh, um, yeah, I, I, it, that's something that's been lost in many areas of medicine. I'm curious to know what, MD anesthesiology programs, how much oversight they get and how much independence they get. And I'm curious, I I just wonder whether your residents get more autonomy and maybe come out of practice ready to go because they know they've done it before and have that, you know, confidence. I still think they, I still think they get it, but I guess it depends on the program, you know, like every program is going to be different. Um, But I, I think they get pretty good training in that regard as well. But, you know, just seeing those, those guys, those seniors that we have coming in and girls, you know, they, they do a great job. Yeah. I'm amazed at what they're doing at their, you know, I'm like, you know, they're basically to, to my mind, they're almost basically ready to fly, ready to fly. And I'm I'm pretty impressed because, you know, technically I I still think they're, you know, they're in technically still in training, although they're at the end of it, but they look like they're practicing independently, could, could take care of a patient. And that's the key, right? You want them ready. This has been a great conversation, Nate. And uh, what what would you leave? What a piece of advice would you leave for people that are looking to work rural or considering working rural from a surgeon's perspective? What is what would what would you leave for our listeners? Right, um, there still is good opportunity to do a broad based, you know, general surgery to be able to do the stuff that you kind of trained to do that you you know, want to do unless you're specifically focused on one subspecialty, even though vast, vast majority of residents do go into subspecialties and fellowships. Um, there are a good, you know, there's a good segment of people who want to go out and do a uh, rural general surgery and to stay broad to do, you know, breast cancer and not have it done by the breast fellowship trained breast cancer, colon resections, not by the colorectal surgeon, all the normal anal rectal stuff that would all colonoscopies, EGDs. Yeah. Endoscopy, a big, huge thing. I've never, you know, there was no GI group here. So I did all the endoscopy. I learned how to take care of GI bleeds that I 
didn't even see in residency. We did, a, you know, the basic required endoscopy, but nothing in terms of intervention stuff. So, um, so you get to do a lot, you get to learn a lot in, and, um, and you still, it still is out there. It is definitely relegated to the rural, to the rural communities, the major urban centers that people have just subspecialized for so many years that there's very, um, little room there. In fact, I, uh, I recently, you know, did some uh, observation with an, I met another surgeon from another place, gave me his card, and it said hernia and gallbladder surgeon yeah. because he's in a major urban center, and that's that's all he does. That's all that's left for the general surgeon, and I think in the urban major urban city, but out there in the rural community, there's a huge need. You know, statistically, a massive number of Americans don't have access to, uh, you know, a surgeon uh, in a, you know pretty wide distance. So if you're the only one there, you will get to do a lot and you can't. It's an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely an opportunity for those who want it, but you know, you have to want to be in that small town. And if you have family, it has to, you know, mesh well with them. Yeah. I think that's great advice, Nate. Thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on the podcast and uh, have a great one. Anytime. Yeah. We'll have to have a part two. deconstructed.com you'll also gain access to our blogs editorials and more resources to keep you updated on the science politics and realities of today's medical industry that's anesthesia-deconstructed.com